going to be unpacking a passage that you would not normally choose to preach on, but because we teach through the Bible, we take the passages as they come, and we assume that God intends for us to address this topic in ways that will equip the saints for the work of the ministry of being saints. The work of the ministry of being brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we're going to be looking today at 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 1 through 9a. And then next time around we'll be coming back and taking up verse 9b and on to cover some very intense passages in God's Word, which I'll refer to toward the end of the message here today. But I'm going to begin by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9a. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. You do these things to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, do not be deceived. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the riches of your word. We thank you for the truth that is revealed here. And Lord, these are things that we need to have filed away in our hearts and our minds for that time, some day, when we will need to be instructed in this matter. Lord, that we may be able to be a wise counselor to others who are already in the midst of conflict and need to be reminded of what your word has to say about this issue. And Lord, may we be effectively equipped for every good work by the word of the living God. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If you were going to guess what is the favorite verse among non-believers, what do you think it would be? 
Well, I think a, a, a very, very close first or second would be Matthew 7 and verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Non-believers love this verse because in their minds it means leave me alone. It's none of your business what I do. And yet this statement by our Lord is given in a context. And as you've heard me say before, a text without a context is nothing but a pretext. It just becomes a, an opportunity for you to say whatever you want to say and to have whatever you want from God's Word. But God's Word is not something that we can just shift around to make it say what we want it to say. And so this passage is important, but it comes in a context, and here we go. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 2. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Matthew 7, verse 3. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite! First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. The hypocrisy that Jesus refers to in this passage is the hypocrisy of judging others before dealing with your own sin. Now some have jumped to the conclusion that this passage is, is telling us not to judge at all and not to try to remove the speck from your brother's eye. But that's not what it's saying. Notice, you're not to attempt to do anything before dealing with your own sin. But after you have dealt with your own sin effectively, then as a brother in Christ, you must judge the sins of others as you would have others judge your sins if you were in the same situation. You see, sometimes we, we read God's Word in a very careless way. And we come away with meanings that are often the opposite of what is actually being said. This passage in Matthew 7 is not telling us not to be involved in one another's lives, to treat it as though it's none of our business, but rather to have the humility to acknowledge our own sin and to deal with that sin first, so that we then have a position and can, as Jesus says, can see clearly how to help our brother or sister in Christ remove that speck that is in their eye. And of course, we're dealing with a metaphor here. For you children who are listening here today, I want you to have in your mind's eye your, a picture of the idea of here's a person who's got a big board sticking out of his eye, and he's gonna try to come over and help you get a little splinter out of your eye. And Jesus is saying, wouldn't it be wise to get the board out of your eye before you try to get the splinter out of your brother's eye? Right? Well, we're talking about the fact that we all have in our own lives things that need to be judged, need to be 
acknowledged as being wrong. And then we need to do something about it. But what kind of judging is Jesus referring to here? The word judge is used in various ways. And so we have the judgment of condemnation, where a judge in a court says, okay, you are guilty and you're going to be put to death. You know, that's, that's a severe judgment, isn't it? But we also have another kind of judgment. It's the judgment of diagnostic judgment, okay? It's, it's the diagnosis of what's wrong in this situation, and then it's the prescription of what would fix what's wrong in this situation. And, and that has to be done all the time as a matter of serving one another, helping one another see themselves more accurately. And so, this is the kind of judging that serves the interests of others as we ourselves would want to be judged by others if we were in the same situation, knowing what we know to be both good and wise. Now, this comes from Matthew chapter 7 and verse 12, where Jesus says, Therefore, what you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is often referred to as the golden rule of Jesus. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Now, we see in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 what this would look like in regard to judging sin in the lives of others. It's not a condemning judgment. It's a diagnostic judgment that allows us to know how best to serve the one who is in error. So we read in Galatians Galatians 6, verse 1, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Do you see the, the attitude that is here is where brethren are diagnosing what is wrong and then prescribing what is right with patience and gentleness. Now, in the very next passage, when Jesus is telling us not to judge, lest we be judged, he requires us to make some very severe judgment calls. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now, you cannot obey this passage without making a judgment call. It might go something like this. Uh, I don't mean to be judgmental, but since you are a dog and a hog, I will not give you what is holy. <laughs> right? That's a pretty serious thing. How do you know who's a dog and who's a hog? Well, in the context, historically, you know, we, we have our dogs today. Boy, do we have our dogs, don't we? I mean, you go to Portland and people don't have kids anymore. They have dogs. Maybe if you have cats, but I see lots of dogs. They don't walk their cats. Maybe that's why. You don't, you don't see the cats, but, but they certainly walk their dogs. And in the Old and New Testament, dogs do not have the kind of social status they have in, in today's world, okay? They were considered to be scavengers. Okay, almost in the same category that we would put hyenas, right? 
They're, they're just a, a wild animal that you can count on to eat whatever is edible, you know. And so dogs were known for just eating everything and anything and having no discretion whatsoever. And I think that that is what Jesus has in mind when he says not to give what is holy to the dogs. Because the dog will swallow anything, not even having a, taking a, a moment to taste it. We see in Jesus' discussion concerning a Syrophoenician woman. You know, she's wanting, wanting him to help her, and he's, he's saying it's not right to give the children's bread to dogs. <laughs> what a rude thing to say to a woman. But what Jesus has in mind as he says that is, you have been going around to every rabbi, every you know, scam artist in town, trying to get answers to what you need, and now you've gotten to me, and I'm maybe the third or fourth person you've talked to today about this problem, and I'm not going to give you what you want unless you acknowledge that I'm not just any religious person. And when Jesus responds to her and grants her request, it's because she has realized that he's not like the other, you know, people that you go to. I was serving in Harlingen, Texas for a year. And in Harlingen, you have a, a very strong uh, Tex-Mex culture, okay? People coming in and out across the border into Mexico and people in the U.S. going into Mexico and, and working. And so they're coming back and forth. And so there's this culture there that has what... Um, is often referred to as, as uh, dark Catholicism. Okay? It's not even really Catholicism. It's, it's something, it's a blend of all of these different religious ideas into something called dark Catholicism. And in dark Catholicism, you have a, 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 a position called a kirindero, which is a, kind of like a witch, kind of like a medium or a, or a sorceress or, or a witch. And this person was often gone, you would go to them when you had a, an illness in your family. And you'd ask them to, to make a spell or, you know, cast out, whatever. And the problem was that many in the Rio Grande Valley would want to cover all their bases. So if somebody would get sick, they'd go to the Catholic priest. They'd go to the Curandero, and then they'd go to the Protestant pastor, they'd go to the Pentecostal pastor, they'd go to the Baptist pastor. And if, if anything worked, they wouldn't know what worked. And so we have this idea in the scriptures that you don't give what is holy to the dogs. A dog-like attitude is someone who's just going to take whatever they can find, and they won't know what worked. And so that's what's going on here. The hogs are different. Hogs are willing to just wallow in their sin. And they get angry if you try to talk to them about the fact that they're wallowing in their sin. So Jesus warns you, don't, don't uh, cast your pearls, your pearls of wisdom, your pearls of, of uh, uh, God's word to somebody who has a hog's mindset, who just wallows in their sin. And if you talk to them, they get angry and they attack you. So Jesus is very practical in this. Don't give 
your what's holy to the dogs and don't cast your pearls before swine. And you can't obey this passage without making a judgment call sometimes, right? You got to decide, who am I talking to? So, making judgments as to how best to serve someone is part of what it means to be a good brother or a good neighbor. We have to make these kind of diagnostic judgment calls in order to make a prescription of how best to serve. But we're always intended to serve the best interests of the person that we're dealing with. It's not a condemning, rejecting kind of judgment. It is a way of knowing how best to serve. Now, Paul, well, first of all, we must judge others as we would want to be judged. Now, you might think, well, wait a minute, I don't want to be judged. Well, let's put it this way. Would you like to be encouraged to become more holy? That's what we're talking about. Would you like other brothers and sisters in Christ to come to you and to talk to you? Not, not confront you. you know, confront's a strong word. But just come to you with gentleness and patience and kindness and say, you know, I think you can't see yourself very clearly from your point of view. <laughs> and I think you need maybe an outside point of view to help you see what, what's going on here. And so with that kind of gentleness and humility, you know, removing the plank that's in your own eye before you even start this conversation, you begin to very carefully uh, talk to somebody about what you think is going on that needs to be addressed. That's the kind of treatment you would want, and that's the kind of treatment you should offer to others. Do for others what you would want others to do for you. If you were in the situation they're in, knowing what you know about what is good and wise, then you want to be able to serve them in that way. But Paul is responding in this passage to the outrage of Christians suing one another, and especially suing one another in the secular courts of law. So the judging that's going on here we're dealing with uh, some really angry, uh, very destructive attitudes. And Paul is addressing this. First, we see in verse 1, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous. That's the unbelieving secular courts. And not before the saints. Now, evidently, there were some Christians who were demanding justice from their fellow believers who had cheated them in some way. It might have been a business deal that went bad. It might have been a promise that has been made that then was not fulfilled. It may be a loan that was given and then not being repaid. Uh, it may be that somebody's, uh, you know, ox got out of its uh, pasture and, and did some damage to somebody else's home or property. But whatever it was, it, it gave the person who had been harmed a sense that he had a right 
to go after this other person who'd harmed him or her and to make them pay. <laughs> to make them pay. And you, let's be honest, we've all had those feelings before. Somebody does something that maybe was just irresponsible and careless and it caused us great harm and great inconvenience. And you feel like somebody, you know, justice must be done. And so we have this situation in the church in Corinth. But this attitude cast a very bad light on what it means to be a follower of Christ. It would interfere with our evangelism. It would allow the world to be mocking the church because it's just a bunch of people like, you know, cats in a box fighting one another. And so Paul is addressing this issue head on. Now, Jesus had, it's interesting, Jesus had taught in the Sermon on the Mount that believers are to be reconciled with one another without taking one another to court. But the reason that Jesus gives for not going to court is an interesting one. And I thought I'd take the opportunity in this message to point this out. I want you to notice how practical our Lord is about trying to find justice in this world. In Matthew 5, verse 25, which remember, is speaking to an audience who are encouraged to say in their prayers, our Father, okay? We're dealing with believers here. People who are in the family of God are to live according to the principles in the Sermon on the Mount, okay? Jesus is not giving the world instruction on how they should live, but rather how those who have trusted in Christ should live in relationship to one another. And so Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him. On the way where? On the way to court. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer. That's the police. And you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid the last penny. Jesus is advising us here to not be so foolish as to trust in secular courts to give you justice. Because we do not have a justice system. We only have a legal system. And people game this system all the time. And to think that you're going to be able to get justice by going to court, the only ones who usually win when you go to court are the lawyers. And they get paid on both sides, and it doesn't matter who's uh, harmed in the process. We have a legal system, and it's a very unjust legal system. And people who do this kind of thing all the time, they know how to push the right buttons and pull the right levers to get what they want. And so Jesus himself is advising you, you're better, you're wiser to settle out of court rather than to go to court and have yourself caught in the trap that is often set by the legal system. Now, Paul chooses to begin his instruction here by instructing the Corinthians on who they are in Christ and then appealing to that as a reason to stop taking your brothers and sisters to court. He writes, do you not know that the saints will judge 
the world. And if the world will be judged by you, so he's including the, the reader as, a, as in this category of the saints, right? You are the saints, he's saying. Are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Speaking of these matters among yourselves. Because if you're going to be judging the world, can't you handle some of these smaller, more temporal issues in-house, basically, on your own, without having to go to the secular courts? As Christians, we're, to, we're being prepared by God to hold future offices of responsibility. And those responsibilities are going to include judging others on Christ's behalf in the kingdom of God when he returns. Now there's more than just a few passages about this, but here's a clear one. Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Wow. There's a lot in this passage. We're not going to take time to unpack it all, but the point is we are being prepared by God to hold responsibilities in the kingdom of God, and part of that responsibility will be holding court, judging. You say, are there going to be disputes in heaven? You know, I'm not sure how all this works, but there will be government, and we will be a part of that. We will be ruling and reigning with Christ. Now think of the implications of that. We will be his delegated authorities, his officers, and we will have responsibility for this in eternity. And so the 12 apostles will actually rule over all of Israel in that new heaven and new earth that is coming. Now, we will also judge angels. This is mind-boggling, but in 1 Corinthians 6.3, Paul writes, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more than things that pertain to this life? This life that Paul refers to here is a rehearsal for the life that's coming. We need to keep that in mind. We are being prepared for eternity, not to live forever in time and in temporal circumstances, but to, to live in that eternal place. And God is concerned to get us ready for that. That's why your life is not easy. If, if, if all it was about it was just living in this life, then God could give us a life of ease. But because he's preparing us in this life to be mature and effective in that later situation, he puts us through things that make us grow up, make us you know, get our act together, learn how to handle stress, learn how to handle conflict, you know, learn how to deal with disappointment. Say, God, can't you make my life a happier life? Well, if I did that, you wouldn't be ready for what's coming. So I'm going to give you what it takes, only enough to get it done. I'm not cruel, I'm not unkind, but I'm going to give you just enough difficulty for you to be ready to take your place in eternity 
and be effective on Christ's behalf. Now in Psalm chapter 8 and verse 1 through 5, we have an interesting description of God's plan and purpose for mankind. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants you have ordained strength because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. So there's conflict going on here, and God has ordained that out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants would come a strength that would be effective in shutting the mouths of these enemies. It says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. In the time in which we live, we are a little lower than the angels. But in the time that is coming, we will judge angels. I don't know how all that works, but I do know that God is solving a problem that began when Satan said, I will arise, I will ascend, I will take my place on the, in the throne of the highest and God cast Satan down to earth. And then in a recreation, reassembling process, God had a seven day week in which he put it all back together. And at the end of that six days, he created a man and a woman and he blessed them and he told them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and he set in motion what we know as the human race. And out of that human race, we know that there was, from the very beginning, a fall, a, a rebellion, a disobedience, because Satan, remember, tempted Eve to doubt the goodness of God to such a degree that she would disregard what she knew to be the will of God. And the doubt that was sown in her heart was the doubting that God was in fact good. That it was the idea that God is withholding something better than the will of God for you. And all you have to do is disregard his will and take what you want. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so she ate of the tree that was forbidden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And she gave to her husband, Adam, and he ate as well. And they fell, their character, their nature fell to a much lower level. We know that they fell in many different ways, but one clear way is one moment Adam is naming and categorizing all of the animals in, the, in creation, and the next minute he's hiding from God behind a tree. That's a pretty dramatic fall in intelligence, right? We know that something happened there and we're not the way we would have been after that fall in the Garden of Eden. And so, Satan was cursed, remember? And it says that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, and in the process, the serpent will bruise or wound his heel. 
and that was a prophecy concerning Jesus Christ dying in our place on that cross, crushing Satan's head, defeating Satan, defeating death, overcoming death, rising from the dead, and redeeming everyone who believes in him and bringing them into this thing called the body of Christ, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe that this redeemed bunch of people, these redeemed and forgiven people, corporately, are the replacement for Satan. That Satan has been rejected and we are being prepared to be his replacement. We know that Satan's original sin was pride. He was so glorious in his creation. He had some kind of position in worship, we know, from the prophets. And his pride brought him to a place of wanting to arise and take the place of God himself. So how do you replace somebody like that? I believe you replace them with someone who has fallen and been redeemed. Someone who will be forever humble, forever grateful, and not prone to the kind of pride that Satan yielded to and sinned. We have been prepared by God. We are being prepared by God to take our place in some way. And this is, this is beyond my pay grade, okay? I don't, I don't know how it all works, but I see it in the scriptures. I see in the scriptures that Satan rebelled. God has judged him, cast him down. He's created mankind. He has given us the opportunity to be redeemed from our fall so that we will be forever singing, not amazing how, how amazing I am, but rather amazing grace. How sweet this sound that saved a wretch like me. And so God has Satan's replacement in training right now. And that is what we are. And so in this light, we can handle the matters that occur in this life. We, as we see in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 4, if then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Now this is where you have to do a little bit of a deductive reasoning here. What is going on in the church in Corinth? Why does he say you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? Well, there are times, you'll notice uh, in this world, in the, in the court system, where a crime is committed in one jurisdiction and the attorneys will appeal to have the court case handled in another jurisdiction somewhere where they think they'll get a better hearing. They're more likely to win over here than if they have the court case over there. And you see this right now going on in in, in several different major you know, cases of, of legal uh, maneuvering. You know, we don't want to go to court in Washington, D.C. We want to go to court in, you know, uh, in Georgia somewhere. Well, 
Evidently, the ones who were suing their brothers were only willing to accept judgment by those who would give them a favorable decision. And they were not the most esteemed members of the church. <laughs> they, they were like your buddies, right? Say, hey, I'll go to, we'll have, a, we'll have court, but I want you to do the judging because you're my friend and you'll, you'll rule in my favor. And then they refused to submit to the judgment of someone who would render a just decision. And so Paul seems to be going after this idea of, of wanting to get your justice. You're wanting to win more than you're wanting to get justice. You're wanting somebody to agree with your, your point of view rather than coming to the right point of view. And so in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 5 we read, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? You see, they're going outside of the church because they don't want the judgment that would come from a member of the church. They want to go out to the secular courts because they feel they're more likely to win a judgment there in their own favor. And so the bottom line is they're not pursuing justice. They're pursuing favor. They're pursuing advantage. The ones suing their brothers were not seeking true justice. They were seeking advantage and unrighteous gain by punishing those who had cheated them, or at least they were accused of having cheated them. And Paul tells them that this is shameful behavior. But it's even worse than that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 6 we read, but brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. Now he'd already mentioned this in the first verse in chapter 6, but now he comes back to it that you're going to unbelievers to try to get your favorable judgment so that you can punish the person that has offended you in some way. They were taking their case before the secular courts because they didn't think that they could win under the judgment of the elders and the leaders of the church. Maybe they'd already been told that they were not going to get what they wanted. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 7a, now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. You've already, you've already blown it here. You've, you've already exposed the fact that there's no love in your heart. You know, your attitude stinks. This is shameful. So what is the God-honoring solution? Now this really is going to hurt our flesh. I mean, when you hear God's answer to this, this problem, it's really going to put the screws on your, on your flesh, okay? Here's what he says. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Ouch. God, are you saying that I should just let this go? But that's not fair. That's not just. You see, there, there are going to be cases in which you've really been hurt. You needed to be paid back that loan. You, you really needed to have that 
car repaired that they wrecked. You needed to have this situation corrected. And God is saying, I'll take care of you. You let this go. Because there are things more important than winning in court. What was lacking in Corinth was the kind of love that is willing to suffer wrongs and injustices when that is what it takes to maintain the unity of the church. We need to rest in the fact that God is not going to let anybody get away with anything. And he knows how to deal with that person over there that really hurt you, cheated you. But your best position in this situation is to cast that care upon the Lord and let him take care of it for you. Rather than charging out and saying, I am going to make them pay. To say, no, I'm going to just turn them over to the Lord and let the Lord settle this in his own way. And I'm going to trust God that whatever I need will be taken care of by my Heavenly Father. I'm going to rest in the fact that Dad knows the truth of this situation and that he is a good and loving father and he will not fail to take care of my needs. Public unity. Uh, uh, a, remember, we're here to fulfill the Great Commission. And when we fight among ourselves, it hurts our credibility in evangelism. And God is requiring us, he's requiring us to hold these things with open hands rather than grasping hands. To be willing to let go of our rights when that's what it takes in order to maintain the unity of the church. Now it seems that they were even going beyond this, and so Paul rebukes them in another way here. He says in verse 8, No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. Now it's unclear as to who, is he, who he's referring to here, because it, it seems like he's saying, you who have been cheated, now turn around and start doing wrong, and even cheating the person that you're going after. And maybe that's what it's all about when trying to game the system, taking the, taking the case to the secular courts, you know, maybe even giving false testimony, exaggerating how much harm is actually done. You see, there's all kinds of things that can creep in, different sins that can creep into your heart when you're going after somebody in the flesh. And so Paul is saying, no, you yourselves do wrong. You who have been cheated, now start cheating. You have been wronged, now you start doing wrong. And you do these things to your own brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So Paul is, is suggesting that this gross lack of Christian love was raising the question in his mind as to whether or not these so-called believers were actually born again. 
They were behaving in such a way that it raised the question as to whether they had a new heart, a new spirit, the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't seem to uh, want to just make it a blanket statement and say you're not saved, but rather that you're acting like you're not saved. You're acting like you're not saved. Don't you know who you are? Don't you know what you're going to be doing in eternity? He's appealing to their identity in Christ. And he says, do not be deceived. And even if they were, in fact, born-again believers, by this behavior, they will not be able to enjoy the benefits of being born into God's kingdom because their behavior is so unrighteous. Remember, righteousness is right relatedness to one another. Right relationship to God, right relationship to one another, that is righteousness. And when you begin to behave in ways that are in the flesh, like the world, then you are being unrighteous. Out of right relationship with one another and out of right relationship with God. And so, this is where Paul turns the corner and he begins to address many kinds of unrighteous behavior that keep people from inheriting the kingdom of God. And that's where we're going to go next, next time. We're going to pick up on this, but in the meantime, I'd like you to read this passage. Uh, it's not the kind of thing you normally would meditate upon, but it would be helpful for you to read this through and think about it before we come back together for the next message. And here's what it says in chapter 6 and verse 9, the second part of that verse 9. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. What is Paul thinking as he writes this? Remember the context. He's addressing those who are taking their brothers and sisters to court in order to get justice, having been cheated or wronged in some way. And they're doing it in such a way that they are moving into the category that Paul calls unrighteous. Well, there's a lot of other things that are unrighteous, and he lists them here. Do you really want to be in this crowd? Do you really want to be in this list? Corinthians, do you realize what you're doing by your attitudes and your behaviors? You're moving in the direction of all of these horrible sins. And when he ends by saying, but some were such of you, evidently they were saved out of these things. So we'll come back to this next time, and we'll unpack this passage 
uh, in a, in a, a G-rated version, okay? And we will also look at what it means that all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. We'll look at what it means to have liberty in Christ, and yet to also live under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and to do the things that are clearly in keeping with His will. So what does it mean that people who behave in this way will not inherit the kingdom of God? Does that mean they are not saved? Or does that mean they're not getting the benefits of their salvation? What does it mean when he says all things are lawful for me? How does that work? And that's what we're going to look at next. So let's pray. Well, before we do that, I have this passage to close with. In 1 Corinthians 13.5, again, I, I remind you to examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, Paul writes. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? These Corinthians seem to be on the verge of being disqualified by their attitudes, their hatefulness, and their behavior. So look closely at yourselves to see if Christ is in you by the Holy Spirit. You should look for evidence, always look for evidence of God's grace in your life. Don't let a day go by that you don't take inventory of the grace of God in your heart and your life. And then respond to Paul's exhortation here today to be willing to suffer injustice rather than destroy the unity of Christ's church by taking your brethren to court. Now you may not actually take them to some literal court, but you could go on a rampage right? You could go on a rampage. Be willing to suffer injustice rather than going on a rampage, rather than going out there and trying to get your pound of flesh, trying to make them pay, trying to get them back. The unity of Christ's church is more important than you winning your argument or your case. And on the other hand, if you're on the other side of this issue, Stop committing injustices toward others in the first place. Stop deserving to be sued. Okay, is that a good way to put it? Stop doing things that deserve to be sued. Because that sets in motion a chain of events that is very harmful to the body of Christ. And so let's 